Uh, I'm R.J. Cutler. I'm the filmmaker, uh, writer, director, producer of Belushi. That is the trailer for the documentary, Belushi, and this is Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, a London-based production company making documentaries about America for international audiences. Today we're talking about John Belushi, the groundbreaking comic of the 1970s and early 80s, and helping us to learn more about bringing this comic genius's life to the big screen is Emmy-winning director R.J. Cutler. Uh, R.J., welcome to Factual America. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, you're here to talk, as we've already, listeners have already listened to the, um, the trailer, uh, Belushi, our uh, UK listeners. It's available on Sky On Demand and now TV. Um, for those in the US or international audiences, where, how can they uh, see this film? Well, you can, if you have access to Showtime, which of course everybody in the US does for sure, you yeah. can stream it on Showtime, you can watch it on Showtime, and then there are various distribution outlets throughout the world. We're, we're, uh, we're kind of covering the earth okay. with, uh, with, with Belushi. All right. Well, uh, again, honored to have you on the, on the podcast. <clears throat> and excuse me, and, and thanks so much for making this film. I've, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Maybe you could, uh, for our listeners, I think many may not have seen the film yet, uh, maybe give us a little synopsis of, of what Belushi's all about. Well, Belushi tells the story of the life of the great John Belushi, who was a remarkable figure in American culture and society uh, in the, from the mid-70s to the early uh, 1980s. He died, of course, tragically at the age of 33. Um, and uh, from a heroin and cocaine overdose. He was, um, he was a drug addict who couldn't, uh, though he tried very hard, couldn't uh, escape the addiction um, at a time when there weren't really the kind of resources uh, or awareness of the dangers of uh, uh, what recreational drug use could mm -hmm. lead to. And, um, um, but 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 uh, he, at the time of his death, or really at the time of his 30th birthday, John was the star of the number one uh, television show on late night uh, television in the United States, Saturday Night Live. He was the star of the most successful uh, Hollywood comedy in history, which was Animal House. And he was the, uh, the, the lead singer and performer and visionary behind the most successful band with the number one album in the world, which is the Blues Brothers. And I'm not saying that he had already achieved those things. I'm saying that at, at his 30th birthday, all three of those things were true at once. And he was a star uh, of magnitude that we had kind of not seen before, rather remarkable. And yet um, a, 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 a kind of everyman figure who, um, who you would not have expected to have been so extraordinarily successful in so many different fields and a visionary really who, who, who pushed his work in multiple directions. Uh, and uh, so um, most previous treatments of John's life have focused on his death. Very famously, Bob Woodward, the, one of the journalists behind the Watergate, yeah. Uh, who broke Watergate here, turned his attention to John's death and wrote a book called Wired in the, soon after John died. Uh, but that book was, a was in, almost entirely focused on, on the circumstances surrounding John's death, and, and it was a rather sensational book. Uh, I wanted to focus on John's life, and I wanted to focus on his work. And, um, and though we, um, you know, certainly are a warts and all uh, mm. film that is is 
uh, as dark as as the uh, telling of the story, I think could be. Um, we we really do focus a tremendous amount of time on what it was that made him special and made him who he was. And through it all, there's this uh, love story with his widowed, uh, uh, well, his his first his high school girlfriend, then his fiance, then his wife, and then his widow Judy Belushi. So um, so that's a that's you know. Uh, a long, short summary. <laughs> Just a little bit longer than a synopsis, but <clears throat> I think um, the, I think it's no, it's perfect. I think you raise a very good point about um, celebrating his life. Sounds like we're at a funeral, but I mean, I think uh, uh, you know that. Uh, look, I, I make a practice of not watching any interviews that have been done previously, like with yourself. But I did happen to come across one with you and. What struck me, I only watched 10 seconds of it, but the guy led in and introduced Belushi as the infamous John Belushi. Yeah. Which I, which I thought was quite, I was surprised, I was shocked by that. I mean, I'm of an age when, I mean, when Belushi first hit, I would have been, you know, first, second, third grade, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, and this guy was, he was iconic. I mean, in, and it was a world yes, of cats. It's a world of catchphrases, which we, I don't think we really do much anymore, but, you know, kids would go around school just... Well, you know, you know, he was. He, he, it wasn't just that his performances were iconic, or his or his characters, Bluto Blutarski or yeah. uh, um, the the Blues Brothers. He, you know, there is no Saturday Night Live without John Belushi. Yeah. Uh, John Belushi, uh, before Saturday Night Live, among the things that he did was write and direct the National Lampoon Radio Hour, which was an entirely underground. Uh, bad boy kind of weekly radio show that was produced by John Belushi and directed by <laughs> John Belushi and written by John Belushi. And guess who it starred? Uh, Gilda Radner yeah. and Bill Murray and Harold Ramis and Brian Doyle Murray and, uh, and a number of other people. And, and, uh, and at the same time, John was also starting to work with Dan Aykroyd and had already worked with Chevy Chase and, uh, and, and then when it came time for Lauren Michaels to assemble the not ready for primetime players, he, those were the people, he, among the people he gathered for his original cast. And the one person who he didn't at first gather, Lauren, was John Belushi, the guy who yeah. had put them all together in the first place. And they all said, my God, we're, there's, there's no point in us coming to you without John. And the, the, the film gets into the, the, the great stories behind how it happened, but but um, you know he was he was much more than just even the iconic performer that he was. Um, uh, how do you say the person described him? Infamous? I, I don't believe there was any infamy whatsoever <laughs> associated with him in any way. But you know that's that's a moralistic judgment of the fact that he died from a drug overdose. Yeah, and that was the problem I think with Bob Woodward's book. Is right. that it was judgmental? It was uh, uh, it, it blamed John, and it yeah. blamed American culture and society. Um, and uh, you know, addiction's a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, but but to blame the addict is to mm. miss the point. And we know we know that now. We didn't yeah. really know it then. Um, you know, there there there. We it's not that we don't pay attention to John's death. But people ask me, well, why isn't there more details? And what about this? And what about this relationship? I'm like, I'm, I just, I just don't care. You know, we all die. We all yeah. die. <laughs> it's like you, yeah. you really want to unpack. You can make anybody's death infamous, I guess, because it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, not the awesomest thing when people die. But, um, but the question is, what? How do we live? I mean, yeah. it's a fundamental existential kind of assertion. How do you live? And this guy lived, man, every second of his 33 years and changed the world in a way that it, 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 we continue to feel his impact to this day. I will have to say, I was kind of keeping a mental note in my head when I was watching it, but then at the end when it says dies, died at age, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, 33, I was like, he was only, I mean, he was only 33. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, and, yeah. and I think- I mean, yeah, most people, it, 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 in 2020, you got a lot of people, you know, just getting out of the house. Just getting, <laughs> just getting out of their folks' house. 33. Oh, yeah, I should probably get a gig here. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
I mean, your film captures the zeitgeist two of the times, and it's it was like a as you've already alluded, not just alluded to, mentioned all these amazing, you know, these names. Um, th- it was the perfect storm for comedy in the U.S., wasn't yeah. it? I mean, it was like the these are the pillars of of that generation's uh, comedy. Yes, and 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 they changed what a comedy was because they brought the counterculture to television. They showed what television could be. They brought youth to television. They questioned what the authority of the box, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they questioned it at a critical moment. You know, if it, it just think of the, you know, there are these landmarks, uh, uh, Nixon leaves the White House in 74, water, uh, um, uh, Saturday Night Live starts in 75. People Magazine doesn't exist until 1974. Saturday Night Live starts in 1975. So the emergence of a celebrity culture and, it, 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 and its ties to the counterculture uh, have a simultaneity with the emergence of this group of comedians who so perfectly capture the moment and, and respond to the moment in a way that, you know, there's a lot of broken glass. There are yeah. a lot of things that get cracked. There's and 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 the, the the whirling dervish at the center of all of it, breaking breaking more things than anybody else was John Belushi, the anarchic uh, performance artist. And it really was performance yeah. art a full decade before anybody used that phrase. That's that's very interesting. I mean, I think. Um... Uh, you know, what I remember too is because um, it was the, you know, Saturday Night Live has now become so mainstream, but at the time it was like, it was the show you hopefully got to watch when your parents weren't noticing, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it was that kind of attitude towards it. It was very, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was, ba- it was bad. It yeah. was bad, but it, you know, it was, it was so good. And yeah. that John, and that's, you know, there's a lot of talk in the movie and you see that, 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 as we all connected to John, we of that generation connected to him. We we felt he understood us, and mm-hmm. we felt we understood him. He was uh, he was part of the 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 anarchy of the moment, but he would look at us with a raised eyebrow, and we knew he had us in mind. We knew he was you know we yeah. we could trust him to be um, you know questioning authority. We could trust him to, to, to break down a wall that would be holding us back and we could trust him to surprise us with his comedy and, uh, and delight us. And, and, and he embodied that. Um, his personal demons are another part of the story. His, the, the, the way in which he needed to stretch himself always as an artist was another part of the story. But, um, but as a, personality who was performing as a sketch artist, which was really his, the foundation of his work, emerging from Second City in Chicago to the National Lampoon Radio Hour and to Saturday Night Live. He was in a way, the everyman who we understood, even a 15 year old kid from, you know, outside of New York City, the suburbs of New York City, which is what I was watching TV, I felt that guy knows who I am and I know who he is. And I think people all over the world had that feeling. I, I, I would agree. And I, you know, it's, it, it just, uh, as an aside, it just reminds me in this country t- too, in that same time frame, a similar person who had a similar impact as they always mention here is John McEnroe. And it's, oh, I think, interesting. Sure. You know, sure. Very much of the time. But, uh, and someone I'm, I know very well because I grew up around the tennis world and uh, and in the in in those years 74 to 77 when john was coming up i think his wimbledon was uh was uh, maybe was it 80 or was it uh no we, we no. may still have been in high school right yeah i'm not sh- i i can't remember I, it's just it just but i yeah i, but I was following him 70s, for teenage years you know when yeah. he was doing the the you know, in the U.S., the kind of U.S., the, the USTA, the, the, yeah. the, you know, 13 and under, 15 and under, 17 and under. Right. And, uh, of course, he never did 17 and under because he was at Wimbledon when he was 17, I believe. And he, yeah. but, uh, but he also captured that spirit. Yeah. Uh, and you connected to him. But you guys had a very complicated, uh, uh, or in the U.K., they had a very complicated relationship with they- John. 
you know they did but there it was a it and let's not i don't want to derail the conversation again i'm the one who brought it up some but, good movies about him yeah exactly and uh but I, yeah it is a complicated because you've got this complication of class that you get here in the uk and while he was yeah he was a complicated relationship with the british establishment there is a generation um you're my generation who would have said well they actually appreciated that they liked that he was shouting out at the at the umpires and the rest. Yeah, and uh, you also know, you, you, know, you, yeah. you have you have the additional complexity of the structure of success yeah. in, in, in his chosen field. Yeah. So McEnroe has to win. He he emerges on the on you know on, uh, at Wimbledon. So yeah. that that becomes a fundamental thing. John Belushi didn't have to get the approbation of the British uh, yeah, culture exactly. society. He didn't have to be invited into the the tennis club. Yeah. Uh, you know, or 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 bow to the Queen or whatever. You know, the royal yeah. box. Yeah, exactly. He, 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 that they that's what the you know, the Python folks had to deal with and the well, Beatles had to deal with. The Saturday Night Live gang got to yeah. they were American to the core and you know, yeah. if you asked they would have said who gives a shit about uh, over the pond. So But you, but it made you mentioned the Python people and this whole thing. I mean, I we 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 talked about all this talent that he brought together. I mean, yeah. it does remind me of Python and what is sure. you know these things happen where all these people, well, in that case, they all happened to go to Cambridge or, you know, I think it was, That's but, right. you know, Wherever but he, but he, uh, you know, he's at Second City and he goes to Chicago, brings all these amazing people together. Like you said, the National Lampoon. And then they go, then Lauren Michaels bringing them all together then for uh, the Not Ready for Primetime Players. It's just, uh, you know, all these people in the same room is just absolutely um, amazing. I mean, it is amazing. It's an amazing convergence. It's like it's in, and and it's not unrelated to the question: How the hell did Paul McCartney and John Lennon meet? You know, yeah. of all the Earthlings, yes. How did those two <laughs> Earthlings bump into each other? Yeah, but exactly. They did, and the and the Lampoon guy and the the Python guys did, and the the Saturday Night Live guys did. But we this one of the things this film tells you is how they bumped into each other, and it's because they all wanted to work with John Belushi. Yeah. And that's an amazing thing. Another fascinating part of the story, we don't really get into this in the film because we don't compare them to the Beatles, uh, the Saturday, they're not ready for primetime players. We don't compare yeah. them to the Beatles and the Python guys. But th there was a time when you didn't know if this group was going to stay together like mm -hmm. the Python gang yeah. or if they were going to break up like the Beatles. And yeah. they broke up. You know, they only lasted at their peak, uh, which is after Chevy left. And John, once John emerges in season two, they were really only only together for two and a half years. Yeah. What if they had stayed together for, you know, uh, which is, of course, you we do get into this. Lauren speaks to it in the film mm -hmm. and you can tell Lauren Lauren is there has a certain sadness that they didn't choose that path, but yeah. they didn't. And um, and and they chose other paths, and that's part of what the film is about as well. But he sticks. So uh, he, he elements stick together in in a way. I mean, sure. uh, yes, he goes on to make uh, sure. you know, Animal House. But uh, he and Aykroyd, I I hadn't realized. So that's the thing. There's a lot of things I I I hadn't realized before watching this film. One being his many talents. Uh, that he wasn't just some comic. He was all these other things that you've already we've you've mentioned, but then this friendship with uh, Aykroyd, which uh, yeah, the, the film is really two great love stories, isn't it? It's yeah. the great love story that 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 John and Judy have, but it's the great love story. I mean, Dan describes meeting John as love at first sight, and he they does. were up in Toronto. And uh, they 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 met at a bar and they stayed up all night. And apparently that that very first night they were up all night. John said something to Dan about wanting to create these two uh, characters who would be, you know, Jake and Elroy Blues and yeah. uh, uh, brothers who had just gotten out of prison. And uh, they didn't pursue that for many years, but uh, but they were connected. Um, they had a mind meld from moment one yeah. and, uh, and they loved each other. And the other thing Dan says is that I instantly recognized the value of being friends with this man. And, uh, and I think he felt the same and they, they just, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a certain kind of, of falling in love and it's, and it's beautiful and you see it yeah. and they were together their whole lives. And part of the tragedy of the story as you experience it in the film is that uh, 
Dan will forever um, regret that in the moment he had the opportunity to go out to LA and rescue John, um, he stayed in New York and, and wrote Ghostbusters, which he was writing for John, which he felt would help rescue John. Um, and, um, and of course, John never got to be in Ghostbusters. Bill Murray played that role. And, um, and, and as Dan says, that's, uh, that's a thing I have to live with. I think that's a very good point. Um, I mean, uh, I'm going to ask you a question about, uh, again, this sort of the, the darker side of, of Belushi, but before we go there, I mean, um, I think you've touched on it, but what do you think his, what was his, his genius, his comic genius and not, and not just limit it to comedy, but what was his genius, you think? I think it ties, you know, I, I, um, I, I once sat on a panel with the great uh, writer, Southern uh, biographer, uh, Walter Isaacson. He wrote the oh, Steve wow. Jobs uh, yeah. biography. He's, he wrote a, a, a biography of Benjamin Franklin. He's written many kind of very, very prominent mm. uh, uh, lauded uh, biographies and I said to him what's what's the what's the what ties all of these people together in your experience and he said it's all about daddy and I think that uh, I think that when you ask the question and I've of course kept that in mind in all of my work because he's right yeah and um uh which is not to say there aren't a lot of the other influences and other impacts in, and all of those things but you yeah. get a lot out of the what that relationship is when you're asking yourself, what's the secret or what's the genius about? And John had this very complicated relationship with his father, but John was also like his father, the outsider immigrant. And, uh, you know, his father was an Albanian who grew up aware that the American dream was something he wanted to pursue. His dad grew up in Albania, wanted to be like John Wayne, wanted to be an American riding horses and pursuing freedom and, and success for his family and brought his family over, uh, uh, came over here with his wife, had his kids in America, opened up a restaurant, uh, pursued the American dream, never really spoke English well, was always a bit ashamed of it. And he and his, but, Al Albanian was spoken as the first language in, the, in his household. And, and they all felt a little outside the waspy, blonde haired, blue eyed, uh, you know, suburban uh, Chicago uh, community that they were a part of. And that, that outsider status um, made John who he was and gave him a unique perspective. Uh, and then there was his nature, which was fearless and unwilling to uh, to to stand up to bullshit, uh, unwilling to be, you know, to be yeah. overcome by bullshit, unwilling not to stand up to it, unwilling not to call it for what it is. And I think the, that combination goes to the core of who he was. Also, he had great taste. <laughs> He, he admired Jonathan Winters and, and, and yeah. Bob Newhart from, from, uh, from a young age. He, uh, he loved music. He just, you know, he had an artistic soul, but he was an everyman. I mean, he was, he, he was if, you, if you asked, if he hadn't become John Belushi and you asked people who grew up with him to tell you about John Belushi, they'd say, yeah, I saw him in a play and yeah, I liked his band, but man, was he a great football player. Yeah. What? <laughs> He was a great football player. Yeah. That's, I didn't know that, that, but that's who he was. He was, you know, he was like a bit of an all-American kid, yeah. but he was the Albanian immigrant. And you smush those two things together along with the hard work he did and the inspiration he received from, uh, from, from Second City and his God-given talent, and you get John Belushi's genius. Yeah, he was even homecoming king, wasn't he? I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. absolutely amazing. Um, yeah. We're going to take a quick break for our listeners, and uh, but then we'll be right back with uh, R.J. Cutler. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. 
Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with RJ Cutler, award-winning director, producer, and writer of Belushi. UK listeners, it's available on Sky On Demand and Now TV. In the US, it's Showtime. And for the rest of the world, just Google it. I'm sure you'll find a place that's streaming it. So uh, um, we were talking about uh, this, this genius of Belushi and what drove him, the all-American kid who's also the outsider and immigrant. Um, and you have this uh, interesting quote, a very poignant quote from Tony Hendra, don't you, in there that I thought was, I, wouldn't, I, I don't know it by heart, uh, but it's, it kind of talks to this idea of uh, the American dream. And well, Tony speaks yet yeah, to the American dream in a kind of more complex way. There is this yeah. American dream of success and fame and fortune, um, but Tony says, then what? Yeah. Once you get that, then what? And that was a question that John had to face. Once you get, once you get out, once the outsider becomes the insider, yeah. Uh, then what? And 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 once the outsider becomes the insider, uh, who who's there to gauge at what price that uh, a, a success was achieved? And, um, and, and it's not a thing that we spend a lot of time reflecting on in American culture and society. We just want the success. And, you know, we're living through that right now. Uh, this is the nature of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, eats, it eats everything in its way. It, it eats culture, it eats, uh, it eats values, it eats faith, it eats community. It doesn't give a shit. Capitalism does not give a shit about your community. You know, and that's what you know now. Capitalism is Donald Trump, disgusting, classless, you know, phony, uh, loathsome. There's nothing good about it at the end of the day. But uh, on the way, there's some good things. <laughs> and it looks good and it seems very attractive. And then you end up with the streets of fire. You and yeah. we, you know we we what's going on in America now? There's so many of us have been like we've been saying this for years. This is where we're going. You yeah. elect that guy, you end up with this. Well, you could also say, and I think Tony is alluding to it to a large degree. You 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 pursue this American dream mm -hmm. without necessarily the culture that is then going to question at what price. And uh, it can leave you. It can leave you feeling pretty lonely, and uh, and wondering what what's it all about, Alfie, and what was it worth it? And yeah. John, of course, was a very private man, yeah. who um, loved his work and loved doing the work. But as I pointed out before, he he was doing so at a time where uh, celebrity culture was just emerging in this and in, in this country, and the press felt entitled to your privacy um and and but but you didn't have the tools you didn't have the mechanism john didn't have publicists who could support him and work with him and make sure that his intros were properly written you know so he'd get mm -hmm. into an interview and an interviewer would say the thing that would piss him off right away <laughs> and then you know you see it in the film yeah you see it yeah you see you it do. in the film he had this ridiculous notion that his private life was his own. And um, um, anyway, there you go. And so, oh, just for listeners, Tony Hendra is uh, well known for, known for a lot of things, but you might know him as the cricket bat wielding manager from uh, This Is Spinal Tap. Uh, but um, uh, so, this, so this thing, to carry on with that, I mean, do you think this is what's behind the melancholy? And I mean, you describe, I think the whole film starts with this Harold Ramis talking about this voracious appetite for life that Belushi had, but also wondering at the same time whether he's going to be able to survive. And well, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a friction between John's enormous appetite for life and, uh, and, and a question as to where, where that appetite goes from being the thing that's driving him to his success to the thing that's going to devour him. Uh, if you don't know where to stop, where do you end up? Yeah. Um, or if you don't know how to stop, or if you're an addict, as, as uh, Carrie Fisher tells us, and stopping only forces you into a worse position because you don't have the tools. You know, I said, you don't have the tools. Yeah. 
John comes of, comes of age, his fame comes of age at a time when they don't have the tools to deal with fame and they don't have the, deals, the tools to deal with addiction. The yeah. Betty, as I said, the Betty Ford Clinic, oh, I haven't said this, the Betty Ford Clinic opens the year John dies. In America, the Betty Ford Clinic is the foundational symbol of recognizing addiction as an illness and saying, you can be helped. You, you, you've got the mumps, you can be helped. Mm. There's a, we're gonna get a vaccine for COVID. If you got addiction, you can be helped. Well, there was a time before that where, before the Betty Ford Clinic opened, where that wasn't part of our culture. You were shamed if you were an addict. Yeah. And, and, you know, John's also a kid of the, of, you know, he comes, he personally comes of age in the 1960s. He, uh, uh, drug use is recreational and it got mm. cocaine's everywhere in the 70s. We can judge him. We can blame him for it. But the man was an addict and he didn't have, nobody in his life had the tools to recognize the danger of that or to help him fix it. So that's tough. That's tough. If you, if you know, in a way he was, he was, he was the first, among the first who had to deal with all of those things with that enormous success. Yeah. So th that's what Tony's talking about as well, is there's just yeah. this kind of complicated um, nexus of things that ultimately did him in. Yeah. Um, I want to then talk now a bit about if it's okay about the sort of the, the story behind the story because i think that's a interesting one as well i mean sure. um um how did this film get get made i mean it all starts with the biography not named wired right it's uh uh we have this belushi biography that uh judy well it really does all start with wired um it starts with wired because in the wake of john's death um uh the the family really Judy uh, and, and uh, other family members agree to let Bob Woodward have access to John's mm. life and to write a book about him. And then the book comes out and they're sorely disappointed for reasons you and I have discussed. Yeah. They, this book focuses on his death. It focuses on the most salacious things. It doesn't focus on his artistry. It doesn't really tell the story of that. It's just obsessed with details you know, sensational details around his death. And uh, they're very disappointed and they become very frustrated and they say no to anybody who asks for access to tell the story. And Judy endeavors to uh, put together an oral history about John. She doesn't know what she's gonna do with it, but she and a couple of other friends, one of whom is a man named Tanner Colby, who's a journalist, start interviewing John's friends. And it's within months and years of his death so the interviews, though they're not necessarily well produced, uh, you know, they're mm -hmm. just running gun. Some of them are on a telephone. Some of them are in the blue, the House of Blues, so you hear music in the background. Some mm -hmm. of them are just, you know, they're they're. Some of them are filmed. Some of them aren't. And you and and they, but but they're thinking one day they'll put together an oral history book, maybe. And they inter, but they interview everybody. I mean, they yeah. interview everyone. Yeah. and uh, everyone who was in John's life and um, from childhood to death and family members as well and Lauren and, and Chevy and everybody. And um, Dan, and uh, uh, it's a, they publish a book some years later called Belushi, which is a tip of the iceberg of this oral history. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily, it kind of comes and goes really. And then mm -hmm. those uh, audio and video tape recordings sit in a box in Judy's basement, Martha's Vineyard, for years, decades. And um, about 10 years before we start making our film, uh, John Batsik, a yeah. documentary producer of great renown and a mm -hmm. dear friend of mine and a man with whom I uh, uh, produced a film called uh, uh, Listen to Me, Marlon, which is a, mm -hmm. about Marlon Brando. Um, John starts approaching Judy and asks her for access to make a movie about John. And she says no, because they say no to everybody. And John, who's, uh, uh, you know, knows better than to take no for an answer and is a, a man who doesn't mind, uh, you know, hearing no more than once, uh, comes back six months later and says, has he changed your mind? Have you changed your mind? And Judy says, no, but uh, lovely to hear from you. And they start to develop, they develop a friendship. And every six months for seven or eight years, John 
Batsik approaches Judy Belushi and Judy says no, but, um, but thanks for asking and it's good to hear from you. And then we do listen to me, Marlon, and John Batsik says to me, I'm gonna ask her one more time, would you direct it? Maybe if we show her, listen to me, Marlon, and you direct this movie, uh, she'll, she'll be inclined, who knows? And yeah. sure enough, she watches the, the Brando film and her life has shifted in a way where she thinks maybe it's time to do this. And she says yes to us. And that's how the film gets made. Interesting. That's, so that's how you get involved. And um, actually, I'm going to ask you a question. You know, we had uh, Sam Pollard on just actually a few days ago. Uh, he says hello, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and um, he's because uh, about MLK FBI, which is out yeah. now. Um, and uh, uh, he posed, he posed, yeah, it is a terrific film. It's, uh, he posed a question to one of his, uh, well, he doesn't have talking heads either in there, except at the very end. And uh, one of the historians, he's like, what is your response? So I'm going to pose it to you as well. I mean, what is your responsibility as a filmmaker when making a film about someone like Belushi? Oh, it's the same responsibility I think one always has, which is to, if, you, if this is specific to the answer, what is your responsibility as to yeah. the question, uh, what is your goal, what are your objectives, what are your yeah. values? My responsibility is to tell the truth. Yeah. Um, that's, my, that's my only responsibility, uh, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm, I also wanna be engaging and entertaining and make a great movie and be cinematic and, and, and spin a, a yeah. good yarn. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and delight and uh, move and uh, all of those things. But my responsibility is to tell the truth. And so when working with the uh, family members, I mean, does that, I guess in this case, how was it working with, uh, with Judy on this? Or was, is that, that is by starting off with the way it did, which is she saw your previous film, she pretty much gave you basically carte blanche, I would have. She did. She did. Yeah. She, you know, well, one of the things we always talk about with the subject at the beginning is that we have to have final cut. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, fortunately, you know, I've had the, the, the kind of career that puts me in the position to say I need to have it and the subject, uh, yeah. they're not the first to have granted it to me. Uh, um, so, so, you know, that's part of the agreement that we make. Um, and, but that doesn't mean that, you know, in this case, the only, by the way, the only interview I did on this movie was with Judy. Uh, mm. everything else was from the archives, was from that oral history. And, uh, and I interviewed Judy three times over a two year period at great length, you know, multiple days. And she was, she was great. And it wasn't easy for her because, uh, you know, we're dredging up painful memories and they're painful memories from long ago and in some cases they're painful memories of things she'd rather not forget and not rather not remember and you 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 hear it in the film you know there's yeah. we, we we discuss the question of responsibility and we discuss whether or not she considered an intervention and we discuss yeah. the difficult times in their marriage and um, we talk about all the joy and we talk about the brilliance and we talk about the magic for sure um, and, uh, but we, we get into the, the darker things. So, um, but, uh, but in terms of, uh, Judy didn't see the film until the film was completed. Um, and you know, then she gave us feedback and I don't, I, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think if you watched, if you watched the cut before she gave me feedback and the cut after she gave me feedback, I don't think you'd recognize any changes, although there were, I'm sure there were some nips and tucks here and there. But there probably would have been changes anyway. I mean, there's always a few little changes. There would have been changes anyway. We go yeah. through this all the time. Yeah. Her, her, there's nothing, uh, the, the likelihood that her feedback is not dissimilar from feedback we would, you know, you're always yeah. getting feedback. Yeah. So you get it from, you, you always have early audiences while you're making your, your film. And, and uh, but the, the thing that matters mm. really on this subject in my mind is that, uh, she and and other family members, Jim, yeah. are, were very moved. They found the film truthful, and they uh, and and they're they're grateful for it. And they and that you know they have wonderful, warm, loving things to say about the film. Would they have made? Would Judy have made a different movie than R.J. Cutler made? Sure, 
Yeah. Sure she would have. <laughs> and I would say that about every subject of every film. Would Anna Wintour have made a different movie than I made of the, of the September issue? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Of course she would have. Yeah. And that's awesome. That's an awesome thing. But, but mm -hmm. you know, uh, the films I'm making are, you know, they're on some important level. They're a collaboration between my filmmaking and the subject's life. And, mm. uh, and, and so any film I make is going to be different than uh, any film another filmmaker or uh, another filmmaker would make on the same subject. And so how do you go about telling this story? Because it's very interesting, because as you said, it's pretty much everything's from the recordings, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, so one thing, I mean, a little spoiler alert to people, but uh, a good amount of it's animated. Yeah. I wasn't expecting. So that, I yeah. mean, where, how did that idea come, come about? Well, you asked, before you asked how animation came about, you asked, how do you go about making the movie? So I'll, yeah. I'll, I, I'm going to answer both questions, but start with the first one. Yeah. The first thing we did was ask Judy for a list of songs that John loved when he was growing up. Okay. So she met him when he was a senior in high school and she was a sophomore. What were the songs that they listened to? Yeah. And we, we knew music that he loved later on and we kind of built a, a, a playlist and we put all the songs together. We didn't, we, because we knew we didn't have, I didn't want to do interviews on camera. Yeah. But we knew we only had these audio interviews. We didn't have a lot of footage of them as young people, but we did have still photos and graphics. Mm -hmm. We didn't have private life footage with ex a, a, later on. Mm -hmm. uh, we had interviews and performances and things. So we knew we had some things, but we knew we didn't have a lot of things. Well, what can we build as a foundation? What can be a bet? So we started with music in this film. And there was a point at which it was song after song after song after song, which is its own problem. Now, when you listen to it, it's portions of song after song after song, right. but it is a lot of music. And it mm -hmm. is the music that John listened to, loved and made from beginning to end. So that was the first thing. At that point, I recognized that there were important holes in the movie. <laughs> there were things you wanted. You, there, were, there were emotional moments that you wanted to see that you couldn't see because we didn't have footage. So what are you gonna do? And I thought, well, maybe animation. And then I saw the work of the brilliant Oscar-nominated animator, Robert Valley. Exactly. And Robert and I connected immediately uh, on vision. And then Robert sent me some animation cells of young John Belushi, three, four years old, knocking on his neighbor's door and the neighbor opens the door and John goes in and does a little performance in his neighbor's living room, yes. which is the kind of thing that young John Belushi would do. And I thought that kid, that young John Belushi, I was thinking again about my conversation with Walter Isaacson, because yeah. let's face it, we are all the kid we were once. Mm -hmm. And if you want to understand who a person is, look at that childhood and uh, there was, uh, I thought, that young John that Robert Valley animated is going to appear at different critical moments throughout the film. Now we have a structure to the animation. We have a driving idea behind it. We have a great artist who's doing it. And um, there you go. Yeah. And uh, our listeners here in the UK will recognize Robert Valley because uh, he's famous here specifically for the... Uh, the gorillas um, videos that he's that he's made so instantly yes. recognizable style but still very unique uh, to and, your film and, and also very John yeah very anarchic yeah very, I, 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 I you know we couldn't get this these we made this film in the days before COVID so it would have been lovely for me to go up to Canada and visit uh, I, I mean, I'm sorry for Robert to come down from Canada to visit us in LA, but he wasn't allowed for reasons I'm not, uh, I'm not privy to. So okay. that's, if, you, if you're gonna have an out, if you're gonna have an animator doing your John Belushi animation, you want him to be an outlaw too. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's a very good point that you've, you've already made about how this didn't just f plug a hole early, you know, for stuff that you were lacking in terms of footage or, or whatever, but it carries on and very well and deftly. Um, and I, and I, you've, you've answered the question I had in my head because you do have these little 
um, again, a bit of a spoiler alert, but uh, you, you have these older versions of John that morph back into the kid and then back into the older version, you know, in some of these scenes, which is, it was quite, uh, I thought it was quite poignant. Well, thank you for saying so. That was the intention. And I mean, the, the kid, the little boy is the last person you see at the Chateau Marmont sitting on the edge of his bed uh, yeah. in the flickering light of the hotel sign, uh, wondering what happened and yeah. what's, and, uh, and, and you feel it. You feel that little boy and you come to know that little boy because that little boy was on set for the Blues Brothers. Yeah. That little boy was, you know, he's been everywhere with 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 you through that movie and then i i don't necessarily want to would say separated but you've got so we got archival got the animation but you've got these letters are these uh because it is as you say it's it's a love story it's almost two love stories but it's certainly this love story between john belushi and judy uh are those those are actual letters and the, and is yeah, that the actual I mean, this is another thing there's so many yeah. things the day that we discovered in the archive the audio tapes that comprised the oral history, um, was also the day that Judy uh, showed us the letters that she had kept from John. He was a very private man, and he wasn't very emotionally revealing in public, but he was, he was very emotionally revealing in his correspondence to Judy. And they, he kept that correspondence up from, you know, from when they met as teenagers until his death. And he was open and confessional and uh, and and a lot of the drama of the of the narrative is is conveyed through the letters that he wrote. And uh, then there's the question: How do you bring uh, those to life? That them to yeah. life. And fortunately, we uh, another wonderful collaboration on this film was the work of Stefan Nadelman, who uh, is a, uh, a you know graphic artist who is responsible for having brought the letters to life graphically. And yeah. he did such beautiful work with that. But we also had the great good fortune of working with uh, Bill Hader to provide right. the performance of those letters. And, yeah. uh, and you know, I'll tell you, it had very, the performance had very little to do with the director. I mean, Bill said to me, do I do, I do my voice or John's voice? I was like, no, no, you do your, you, you be you, but to the degree possible, capture the spirit. Yeah. And, and man, he does. He captures John's heart and soul. He's not doing an imitation of him, but uh, but he brings those letters to life in a really profound way. I, I well, I I completely agree. Um, I mean, it's hard to believe. I think we're starting to come we're coming to the end of our time uh, together, RJ. I, I know That's you've what also we got. To... We'll have to meet again. Well, I would love to have you on again. And speaking of which, so um, well. Uh, I'll ask you that question shortly, but uh, while we got you here, I mean, you, you got your start with uh, D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges. How's What's, I mean, that's amazing. Uh, it's, a, it's amazing for my life. It's a great good fortune. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful uh, artists, wonderful people, wonderful teachers. Um, and together we made a wonderful film and they, uh, 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 you know, the, the story of how I met Penny and Chris is that, uh, uh, my my dear friend and producing partner on that film, Wendy Ettinger, and I knew we wanted to make a film about the Clinton presidential campaign. We didn't know much more, but we didn't know how to make movies. And we figured if we could get, uh, maybe if we could get D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges <laughs> to make it, we'd, we'd be on to something. Yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, I asked a friend of mine who was kind of in the, in that line of work, how we would, how he would get to D.A. Pennebaker. And he said, why don't you look up his number in the phone book? I was like, good idea. I'll look his number up in the phone book. And guess what? His number was listed. And guess what? When I dialed it, he picked it up. He Amazing. picked up the damn phone. And then when I said, I'm, I want to make a movie about the Clinton campaign, I want you to direct it. He said, well, why don't you come by and we'll chat. So uh, it's really, it was really a, a, a charmed experience and a great blessing in my life. And Penny and Chris, man, they taught me, they, they, they love to teach. Um, I think I would say almost as much as they love to make films. Penny, of course, passed away this summer, is no longer yeah. with us, but, yeah. um, but uh, I am among the many uh, filmmakers who had the enormous benefit of, of their generosity and and brilliance and and desire to 
teach others in 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 who aspired to make documentaries that would you know hold a candle up to the work that the two of them uh did and have done throughout their careers well i'm sure they would be very proud of their pupil or probably have already told you that um but uh with what's what's next in uh what's next for you i mean you've got you're doing all this promo stuff for belushi but uh i'm sure you're not sitting still i'm sure there's other projects uh rods in the fire well, well quite literally as we speak we're finishing up a, a feature documentary that i'm that i'm making about uh, billy eilish the, the the young pop star yeah. um we spent a, a year filming with uh, her and her family and um uh, folks can see a trailer uh, uh, for that film online. Google it. Uh, it's uh, Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry is the name of the film. It's going to be premiering uh, on Apple TV Plus all over the world uh, on February 26th. It's also going to be in theaters all over the world on February 26th. Mm -hmm. um, very, very proud of it. Very, very excited to share it. Um, it's, it's, it's the story of the, her 17th year, which is the year that she released her album and, and, uh, uh, right after she turned 18, won a whole bucket full of, uh, Grammy awards and emerged yeah. in a global phenomenon. But, um, but, but the story begins long before that. And, um, and it's also a, a family story about her, uh, her relationship with her brother, her relationship with her folks. It's, it's, um, uh, as I say, I'm, I'm really, really excited about it and about sharing it with the world. Well, you're following D.A. Pennebaker's footsteps. You know, you did primary, don't look back. You've got, uh, you know, war room. You've got uh, perfect candidate. You've got now this. So, um, so we look forward to seeing that. And if we haven't scared you off, I mean, uh, I'm sure we can, we'd love to have you on to discuss that, that film when it comes out. Can't wait. Uh, yeah. Well, well, sounds great to me. And, uh, can I just say thank you so much for your time today? We really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, just to remind our listeners that the film we've been talking about, if you haven't figured it out already, is Belushi, uh, available in Sky On Demand and Now TV here in the UK, Showtime in the US. And as I said before, just Google it, you'll find it. And uh, I want to give a thanks here to, uh, to This Is Distorted Studios here in Leeds, England for keeping us open and safe during our yet another national lockdown. And please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.